four new episodes are left until the Enterprise season finale and their heroic mission to save Earth. Wednesday, you must find Jonathan Archer. The crew comes face to face with its own future. Who are you? She would appear to be your uh, great granddaughter. You've hardly changed, Mother. I beg your pardon. Meet the descendants of Enterprise. These people are family. I'm not going to let you kill them. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, realizing that his family line ends here. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about the Enterprise episode E2, and maybe look at how serious Star Trek episodes can actually be fun. I know that's crazy, but it's true. Do you, do you call it E2 or E squared? What, what do you think the uh, writer's intent was here? My guess is E squared, but it often comes out just E2 when I uh, recall the episode. But I think E squared is accurate. Yeah, I've always uh, called it E squared in my mind. I think it was kind of to be a kind of a play on words here because it is, you know, a, a second enterprise. We, the uh, NX01 is in the Delphi Expanse and it encounters a generational ship that, uh, well, it had uh, gone back uh, 117 years in the past, roaming, and uh, the Delphic Expanse, and we get to meet, I guess, all the ancestors of the crew as we know it. And, Kim, th- this is kind of like an episode that I want to tackle because it is such a fun conceit, but it doesn't have to be like a goofy one, say, like, take me out to the Holly Suite or anything like that. It can still be a very serious episode. And one of the things that, you know, we're watching like new Star Trek, like Kurtzman era, Discovery takes itself very seriously. Mm. Picard takes itself very, very seriously. And when Picard tried to have fun, you end up with stuff like uh, Jean-Luc wearing a beret and doing a bad French accent. Um, Discovery, I think, was more successful when they did uh, Magic to Make the Sanest Matt man go mad but then they kind of stopped after that and they you know in, i'm not saying there have not been moments of levity within those respective shows but those are moments you know and like i, I think there's still a way you can do very very serious themes but do within a sci-fi conceit that makes it actually fun to devour and i think this show absolutely succeeded i think it's one of those kind of hidden gems of star trek even though it is still a very popular episode amongst enterprise fans it also has a sense of discovery, uh, not to make a pun on Star Trek Discovery, but this episode has this constant sense of you can't wait to see how various characters are going to interact with you know, their descendants. Um, you want to see how dynamics are going to work out. I spent a lot of the episode, even on the rewatch, wondering when young T'Pol was going to meet older T'Pol. It has all these moments I'm anticipating throughout, just in terms of dynamics. The plot itself, like, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on it, but it's not like I was like, I need to know how they're going to resolve this time situation and whatever. But it's the character stuff that just had all the, like, the real hooks in me to carry me through the episode. Yeah, and you, I, I want to jump into the character stuff. That's what I had, like, the most amount of fun watching. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I like the ambiguity at the conclusion of this, about whether it's unclear if uh, the second Enterprise survived, you know, kind of that, that final climactic scene. And th- there's just a real cool moment where, you know, they reflected, like, well, you know, if history cor- corrected itself, then how come we can still remember our interactions with them? And I, I like that ambiguity. I-, I don't need answers. I don't need to be the guy who watched The Sopranos and must know what happened to the Russian. <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm talking about here uh, who's seen The Sopranos. So this is kind of why th- this episode just works, like, on a way that's... I- th- this is when Enterprise Season 3 was really going on full cylinders, in, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, it kind of has an ending that reminds me a little bit of the Terminator timeline, where it's like, you don't need to question it. It all just, it's its uh, fictional time travel storytelling. Let's just go with it and focus more on the characters than the, you know, the numbers and what have you to answer the math as to how this should have all resolved. I think it's also appropriate that the actor who played Laurie and David Andrews was in Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. So uh, maybe that Terminator connection really does pay off. <laughs> Was he just the latest John Connor? 
Uh, no, he was the father of Claire Danes' character, um, who ran. He was like a military guy who was running the uh, project that would uh, be taken over by Skynet. It was actually a major role. Like it was a big role in the movie. Give it enough years, everyone in the world will get a chance to play John Connor at some point. So, <laughs> um, I do want to give some props. Uh, Roxanne Dawson directed this episode of mm-hmm. uh, Voyager fame, and it was also written by fan favorite Michael Sussman. I actually remember back in the day he used to post in the trek bbs i think he was actually like even like a user before he ever was able to go and pitch and get hired on as a uh, writer i think he was doing like um freelance work for uh voyager towards the very end so it's just really cool to see like how he just kind of developed like this career in star trek and you could tell he was kind of like one of those diehard fans that ended up getting hired on to the franchise as well well, that's something you notice when you get towards season three and four of Enterprise is that they started to hire a lot of people that were fans and could actually put together really good episodes. Um, you know, you obviously have Manny Cotto taking over in season four. You have Sussman. You also have, I'm going to totally blank on their names, but it's the married couple who wrote um, a, several episodes in season four. I think they were um, attached as well to the um, Mirror Universe two-parter. Like they had a really good sense of story as well. I think that's uh, Michael and Phyllis Sussman there. <laughs> what? Uh, the married couple you mentioned? Yeah, no, it's the Reeves something. Oh, okay. It's like uh, Garfield Reeves, I think, was their last name or something. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha. Uh, you know, it's, I, I'm totally uh, mixing up uh, people here. So, yeah. Um, getting into the meat of the matter, though. Like, um, I, <laughs> I like the idea of kind of Lorian being an antagonist, but one whose motives I can understand. We don't often see this, you know. And is he really the bad guy by the end? He comes around, but he is kind of pushing against, like, what uh, his crew may want versus what the uh, NX-01 crew may want. We even have Archer's descendants as well, like, pushing back against him. He's actually, like, you mentioned a few moments ago, he, he had a significant role in uh, Rise of the Machines, but I, I think he really does kind of... Uh, uh, fill in like really well here as you know somebody jumping in and it's tough to do this on weekly television but just jumping into everything yeah and he has to walk a very fine line in that we want to see archer and trip and Depaul, um overcome this guy but at the same time we have to be on board with his mission and understand how much it means to him and the fact that it's taken generations to reach this one point in history Obviously, we ourselves as the viewers who live on Earth care about the fate of Earth and have seen what's happened to it throughout, you know, Enterprise at the end of season two into season three. And so the importance is there. But the character, while we may not uh, be the most thrilled when he's um, tasing a trip, we completely understand him and are sympathetic to what he wants. And we honestly want to see him working with our heroes as opposed to we want to see him locked up in the brig by the end of the episode. I, I do want to go back because you know how obsessive compulsive I am, but uh, uh, Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong, they were indeed uh, partners uh, oh, uh, okay. going back to days and uh, wrote together. So there you go. Um, but um, you were referring to Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens as well. So there you go. Yeah, um, there we go. Many partners working together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's also, okay, we're jumping into Enterprise at a time where it seems as if everyone is kind of catching up to episodic television kind of like being transitioned over to serialized television. So it is interesting to watch the writers kind of learn on the way after this kind of very quick transition to how things are going in terms of TV storytelling. Whereas with Deep Space Nine, it seemed as if it came up more naturally. It was like the writers are like, okay, well, let's pick up on these threads. It wasn't like they were forcing themselves into a situation where it was very clear that it was kind of the studio and the network telling the writers, okay, we want to storyalize a story moving forward here, and that's what you get in season three. And that and that said, um, Cam, it's been a while since I watched season three. I think this episode kind of stands on its own. I, I watched the previously on Enterprise, and I didn't seem lost uh, watching this one, even though I was just like, yeah, they got to go meet up with Degra. Here's the generational ship that uh, appears all of a sudden. Like, I, I think this one totally works uh, without having to watch all the episodes that came before it. Yeah, there's like loose little threads, like minor things. Like if you showed this episode to someone who hadn't watched Enterprise, they might be a little confused as to who Degra is. But they do enough within the episode itself just to sell that this rendezvous is very important. So you go, okay, fair enough. Uh, It doesn't depend on you having seen all of season three to enjoy it. Whereas like when I look at something like Discovery, I can't imagine just sitting someone down and showing them like episode seven in, you know, season three Discovery. Like that wouldn't even make sense. So like, I think they probably learned lessons in a different way 
But, you know, you look at season one of Enterprise with all of the temporal Cold War, which wasn't like obnoxious the way that maybe some of the shakier stuff in Picard or Discovery is, but like it wasn't particularly elegant. It was not well handled. And so it feels like by the time they got to season three, jumping through those hoops, season one and two that the studio demanded, they at least found a comfortable balance that they were able to tell the stories they wanted to tell, but still give the studio what they wanted. A little bit of, you know, a little bit of this for them, a little bit of, of this for us. Yeah. So I want to kick it off a little bit about the opening scene there. Essentially, beyond the uh, old T'Pol revelation, we have, uh, you know, uh, Tucker having a very awkward conversation after he and T'Pol just have sex, and uh, she doesn't really want to seem to acknowledge it. Uh, It's kind of an exploration on her part, and she's done with that. And uh, Tucker looks a little bit uh, crestfallen at that news. I'm shocked he's so crestfallen over this. Um. But 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 it's interesting because eventually we find out that uh, he they do have a descendant, which is Lorian, and it kind of actually makes it all the more sad to think of the death of baby Elizabeth in uh, I think it was Demons, uh, the uh, penultimate episode, mm. knowing that you know it, it was a possibility those two could have had a child, and, and well they they technically did because I I'd like to interpret it as, as Lorian is still out there as the uh, son of T'Pol and Tucker. Oh, so you hold to the theory that they're still out there somewhere. Well, yeah, they left it ambiguous. Yeah. And as they said at the end of the episode, they said, well, if they were wiped out, how can we can st- still remember them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Yeah. Did you, uh, where did you come down on uh, that? You seem surprised by uh, my, my assumption. Not surprised because I think the episode leaves you with just your the ability to choose whichever you know outcome you'd maybe prefer to go with. I tend to think that they died in that moment and sacrificed themselves for the NX-01. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess we don't really, I guess either one of us subscribe to the, they were erased by history or whatever. Yeah. Well, here's why I don't want to believe that they died, because I think it'd be fun if that generational ship continued on for more generations. And it may, I don't know, maybe they can pop up somehow in strange new worlds, like 100 years later, or something like that. And we can see what the NX-01 has you know, turned into if we ever get a chance to go back into the Delphic Expanse for maybe, I don't know, a Zindi catch up or something like that. Well, do you think had Enterprise been more successful and run to, you know, seven seasons, we would have had the return of Eat Squared? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I... Well, it's hard to give. Okay, I can tell you, I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah. I think that to give, uh, even though sometimes I like the ambiguity of things, it would have been fun to kind of pop back in with those folks, and so that they know that they made a difference, that they were able to stop the Zindi probe, save Earth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think that would have been a kind of a nice cap on that story, and it would have just kind of brought up all these questions about like, how does a ship? You know, if I can nerd out for a minute, but how does a ship evolve? And there were some elements within the uh, the uh, descendant ship that we saw, uh, like there was just kind of like, you know how we got a bit of a refit for uh, the NX-01 and then even uh, the Columbia had even a more of a different look. And you can kind of see some of those elements that they were playing with one season earlier in uh, the look of uh, the descendant ship. Yeah, I mean, it looks fantastic. I love that shot where it comes through the you know the nebula or whatever it is and it just has it's instantly recognizable as the nx01 but at the same time just has that upgraded look that is so cool like is there an eagle moss model of that because there should be i don't think there is Ooh. uh but i agree with you uh, there should be at this point but is it would it be weird if there is not they've done pretty much models of like uh, non-canon <laughs> ships at this point right i mean i've seen some you know in las vegas on the big display shelf where i'm like i'll take their word for it that this is what that ship is because i have no memory of this whatsoever whereas this seems like a pretty major showcase one i think the only thing that would maybe determine it would be if enterprise ships didn't sell as well for them but i can't imagine they wouldn't have this do you remember that the uh, in part of the Zindi War they had that like flash forward scene that Daniel's just showing how eventually the Zindi team up with uh, the Federation. You guys will be allies, and there's a quick glimpse of what would be the Enterprise J. Yeah, and it's like it, it's blurry; you can barely see it. And Eagle Moss ended up producing like a model of that kind of blurry Enterprise J that we saw at the time, which I was just like, okay, you guys are going for it. It's not just Voyager with a blade of armor. It is even the blurry Enterprise J. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm looking now online. It appears there is no E squared Eagle Moss ship. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I, I've got some questions about this generational ship, though, Cam. Mm-hmm. Like, what if somebody wishes to leave? Like, over the last 117 years, have like, what is a possibility uh, that people have left and, and gone on? Or do you think? It, it's such a close-knit community that everyone's kind of in it together and that's their home. Like, do they want to just be left to drift somewhere in the Delphic Expanse, which is kind of a weird place to hang out? I would have to imagine somewhere along the road over these, like, you know, 100 plus years, someone's left. Like, there has to be at least a few that have gone off on their own and that you would just have over the generations replacements for all these positions on the ship. It just doesn't make sense otherwise. Because, like, I would imagine some characters would have multiple children, right? Like, and so you could have had um, some characters get left behind. It doesn't make sense to me that it's all in. Because even like Star Trek Discovery, um, you have the, you know, the moment where they're going to choose whether to stay or go into the far-flung future at the end of season two. Not every single crew member jumped on board for Discovery to head off into the future. Like, I have to believe some stayed behind. So I would think the same thing with this ship. They're like, okay, you know, we, we've uh, been hanging out with the same people shoulder to shoulder for, you know, five, six years now. I, I, I don't know if I want to commit to having my children grow up for the next 117 years uh, doing this particular mission. I mean, it's also like a very specific lifestyle choice and career choice yes. to uh, pursue this sort of uh, career. And I, I just, how many people do you know that have the exact same job as their parents? And as their grandparents, and so on and so forth. Well, it's interesting. There's a great episode of Battlestar Galactica that kind of addressed that issue head on. And I've probably alluded uh, alluded to it before. And I I think it's something that you do have to address when you're talking about these kind of generational ships uh, moving forward. So, um, but they bring up the fact that, like, we can't contaminate the timeline. We can't contaminate our own culture. So we do, uh, like, a lot of these people, like, I guess they'd have to abide by that and just kind of stick close to the Delphic Expanse and not warn Earth uh, that uh, the attack on the Zindi were coming? Yeah. It, it, this is the sort of um, nugget of a, a conversation here where you really start to realize, like, you could make a really interesting show about this. Like, this could definitely be good fodder for a Star Trek show. It would be a legacy ship um, lost in space or something or lost in time or whatever. I mean, I don't know if they want to repeat basically what Voyager was and what Discovery kind of did, but just the idea of a legacy ship would make a fascinating look into a ship. Like what determines your future, you know, the legacy of the past or your own choice over the future. That is legitimately interesting philosophical questions to be tackling with on a week to week basis. Is Paul just keeping it all together, holding the crew together at that point? Or is she more of a recluse in her cabin, uh, you know, 117 years on? I feel like she doesn't have the most vocal voice anymore on that ship. She seems to be somewhat of a recluse when we see her. Um, I just want to say a side note. I always appreciate when they have young actors do old person voices because um, (laughs) there's no way Jolene Blaylock sounds like that in old age. Well, uh, she would have been 180, I, I believe. In Vulcan years, though. Yeah, and I'll point out that Mark Leonard was playing about 202 years old in his final appearance as Sarek. So um, there was a, a bit of a difference between those two. And also, I okay, you know how actors like to play old age? and As you say, they, they do the voice, they do the hunched over thing, they get caked with makeup. But if you look at what old age generally is, it's um, uh, look at William Shatner right now or look at Patrick Stewart right now. Like those are older gents but they don't look like as uh, worn down by father time as say uh, Jolene Blaylock did in this one no and the makeup um, don't know I worked the best with HD (laughs) but um, yeah it was that classic Star Trek pancake makeup you know they put on them and like even going back to like deadly years it's a more refined version but it's that similar kind of look and or also, you know, the favorite one is also to cite uh, the movie J. Edgar with uh, DiCaprio and Army Hammer um, wearing makeup like that and trying to play old men. And it's just like, I wonder how much of it is a disconnect when you're an actor or anyone, frankly, in your 20s or 30s trying to get into the mindset of someone who is very elderly. It's like you can't quite grasp it. Whereas as you age, you're like, oh, 
I feel like I understand it a little more now. <laughs> well, you, you know, I want to give props then to Patrick Stewart because when Star Trek Picard premiered, you know, we, we see his performance, blah, blah, blah. And it was very clear to me that um, he had been uh, playing it up quite a bit uh, mm-hmm. when you go to the flashback scenes in which he is Admiral Picard and he's a lot more energetic. I'm just like, oh, like Patrick Stewart is doing more of the subdued version of old person versus the over the top. I now speak like this and, you know, my hands look like ninja turtle fingers for some reason. And it's like, um, you know, so I don't know. But I, okay, as much as we're kind of like chuckling about this, um, the scene that uh, the T'Pols shared with each other, I just, like, props to Julian Blaylock. Like, it, it's, uh, she really is a great actress. I, I, I feel even happier knowing that, like, she eventually became my favorite Enterprise character after definitely not starting out that way. I just wish, like, she, she's living a happy life. Uh, she, she's raising her children. Um, you know, like, I I wish she, she did pursue, like, other roles beyond Enterprise. Because um, I, I think she just could have had, like, a so many more interesting things going on in her career had she chosen to do so. I just wonder if the, you know, the offers weren't there. Because I know, you know, you do Star Trek, and Star Trek doesn't necessarily do wonders for your career long term you kind of get pigeonholed by being you know the genre actor or actress and i remember jolene blaylock showing up in like was it starship troopers 3 you know things like that it just didn't seem like maybe the opportunities were there that would excite her to continue to move forward um because hollywood is not known to be the most fun place to deal with and manage a career in and i just wonder if it was like uh, like i'm just not getting anything that excites me yeah, I get that, and, and I I can totally buy um, that. It, it's interesting. Like I, I'm going through her IMDb Enterprise Raps in 2005. She did like a TV movie in 06, um, something called Shadow Puppets in 07, Starship Troopers in 08, an episode of CSI Miami in 08, uh, one episode of House in 09. She was doing it. She's working about like once a year. My understanding though is like is really um, more of her family situation that kind of that kind of took over. Maybe she was just doing it at the side of her desk more so and then like kind of raising the family. And not that this should be kind of a deciding factor, but from what I understand, her husband was or is incredibly wealthy, like just incredibly wealthy. And so it's not as if she needs to be kind of that working actor really going at it as if it's a grind. Because one thing you hear from actors is they never know when their next job is going to happen. They're very, very frightened of getting killed off a show uh, because that means their paycheck is gone too. So I, I just don't think that she had to deal with that sort of stress. And she was like, yeah, you know what? Let me do a couple uh, things on the side and let me really be kind of the uh, the best mother I can be to my children and uh, a great partner to my husband as well. Yeah, I, no, I think that's completely accurate. And I, I just think also uh, Hollywood for women is brutal, really brutal. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's just probably not an environment that if if you don't have to fight it out, do you want to necessarily? Maybe not. And I don't know what sort of role she's being offered. You know, you're naming a lot of projects there that are kind of these like B or C grade things. I mean, obviously not episodes like House and things like that, uh, CSI, but it's just like, I don't know. The working conditions, who knows what they're like. So her last credit as an actress was uh, a TV movie in 2017 called A Man for Every Month. <laughs> My nickname. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Think about that, Cam. No, no. As in, I am a man for every month. Every month of the year shines down on me. <laughs> if you have to clarify that to everyone you meet, uh, you might want to rethink your nickname. There's a reason I don't publicize it that much. <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. So, oh um, yeah. So some of the other like stuff like uh, I like digging into that that very awkward conversation in the mess hall where you find out that uh, Flocks and I guess uh, one of the Makos very very prodigious. Uh, lots of uh, half denobulans or or at least part denobulans. Uh, running throughout the ship but uh we also find like or i should say travis finds out who he hooked up with same with the hoshi they turn to read and like so who did you end up marrying and he just has this sullen look <laughs> in his face he's just like yeah well i guess the uh the reed family lineage came to a very inconspicuous end here so it's just kind of like and then here's the thing that bugged me about this scene though is that hoshi points out that like women make up one third of the crew 
Yeah. So, and then she said, there's bound to be some bachelors. Why do women make up one third of the crew, Cam? Why not half the crew? Well, it's 2002. This seems like the sort of line you'd put in a script back then and no one would blink. But uh, yeah. It seems like a, a line that you would have put in a script in, say, TOS. I don't think you'd have that in TNG, though, or Deep Space Nine. I, I just I wonder if there's a bit of a blind spot for the writers or I don't know. Like, it just seems weird that uh, men would so greatly outnumber women aboard this ship in a Earth society that you would figure would be equal. Yeah, I have no. I mean, I, I again, I think this is just entirely based in old moded uh, or old modeled style of storytelling and uh yeah this would not be the case now you look at a show like discovery that wouldn't be the case uh i i think it's also an easy line to toss off i, I don't even know that they thought through the ramifications of it but it was like a line they could toss off to explain why reads a bachelor and that the audience wouldn't maybe question especially back then um yeah it plays kind of weird though i agree yeah, I, I agree that that's kind of the explanation, but it's just, it's one of those moments that has not aged well, you know, 20 years later. No, and I mean, this is one of the moments, as you said up front, you know, like, as we were talking about up front, that, you know, serious episodes can be fun. This is kind of fun. Like, the whole Reed grappling with his <laughs> lack of legacy was pretty funny to watch. And, you know, you get the little comedy beat at the end of him asking if, you know, the female crew member wants to sit with him or something like that. I mean... Reed is a character. I mean, you know how we did that episode, The Psychology of Jordy LaForge? You could do an episode, The Psychology of Malcolm Reed, because he's a really weird character that the show frequently ignores. But every now and then they give you these little insights into who he is, and you're like, who, like what? Like, who is this man? Well, it's also bizarre because, like, it, it wasn't like he's a total wallflower you know, like, uh, within like the, the series, it's like, I, I would say that the top three are obvious. I think flocks is the next most prominent character. And I think it's Reed after that. So he has like more screen time. He has more lines to, uh, say than say Hoshi or Mayweather. So it's just weird. Like when he does have lines to say that give insights into his own life, it's just like, they, they do make him look like an oddball like i i wish they did just more of that made him even stranger because otherwise it, it he's got like this kind of flatness yet charismatic flatness just because the actor as well yeah and like a lot of it is in terms of his backstory making him from a, a line of you know navy men and what have you so there's like kind of a serious sort of like military kind of style to that character but then they like show you just weird cracks in that character. There's the episode, I'm totally blanking on the name. I think it was named something like Minefield or something like that, where he's pinned on the outer hull of the ship and you just find some weird character stuff from him in that episode. There's the thing about him only liking pineapple. Um, it's just like every now and again, they give you a little bit that makes you go like, huh? Like, who is this character? I think of also the episode where they go down to Ryza and it's him and Trip, like, looking to meet women. And it's like, it just feels strange in comparison to what Reed does so often on the show. Like, I, I would have liked more Reed showcases because I feel like he's an episode that the writers had an angle on that was kind of strange. And Dominic Keating, the actor, um, we've seen him many a times in Vegas. He is a quirky individual, extremely quirky. And I just can't help but wonder if at a certain point the writers would pick up on this and start to infuse that into the character a little bit. Well, okay. So, like, Hoshi would generally get, like, one episode a season devoted to her. I think, like, Mayweather only had two altogether throughout the run of the series that, like, it was devoted to him specifically. Like, he had, like, more to do in, like, uh, some episodes for yeah. sure. Uh, I, I think uh, about, like, kind of the... Uh, the Terra Prime slash uh, demons uh, closeout uh, he, where he's kind of, uh, you know, hanging out with his journalist friend there. But um, I don't know, like read Beyond Minefield, which I, I remember that one. I think there's another episode, was it called Breaking the Ice? I think that involves, like, there's a big focus on Reed there as well. But beyond that, like, there weren't a lot of, like, reed centric episodes throughout Enterprise Run. There's a lot of Reed screen time or relative amounts. I just... I just wonder if it's one of those characters that they didn't quite know how they wanted to tackle it. And I, I remember, like, he said he came into the audition and he had a completely different take on the character. 
he thought it was going to be like a real blue collar sort of guy. And I think the writers are like, no, we want like kind of a, a more of a refined military man. And so I think there's just maybe this discrepancy with regards to what the writers initially envisioned for him and, and what uh, Dominic Keating wanted to bring to the role. And I, I, I don't know, I just like, I like it when Reed is on screen. I just wish that they gave him just more, you know, meat to chew on, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I would have liked to have seen more of Reed and have him driving stories because when he does, they're actually pretty effective. I think of um, just all the stuff with, you know, um, Major Hayes, like that's, you know, not Reed specific episodes, but like that, you know, mini arc that goes on there is really strong stuff. And I think of Shuttlepod 1 with him and Trip together, again, really fun two-hander with those two characters. There was more ground to cover there, but you know what? We're saying all this. Hoshi and Mayweather had it worse off and they deserve those types of stories as well because an episode like this, uh, Reed doesn't have a lot to do, but you know, Hoshi and uh, Mayweather also pop in in that same scene and they have fun little bits of business there too where we find out about their futures or you know potential futures, their characters who as well lent a lot to the show or should have. Yeah. So if I can geek out for just a second here on the Star Trek podcast, but I, I do want to give props to Roxanne Dawson. And that there's like this shot where we see, I believe is old to Paul handing off like a pad to young to Paul. And they're both in a single shot. That That is hard to do in which you have two characters not shot together, but they appear in a single shot, if that makes sense to viewers. But it's kind of the split screen thing. And within the split screen, you have those actors interacting. That That's not really easy to do, especially if you're on a TV budget 20 years ago. She pulls that off. And the reason I bring that up, though, is because uh, she ended up becoming uh, one of the more regular directors on The Deuce, the HBO series, in which we have James Franco plays twins. And there is a specific scene in which... Uh, the twins are physically interacting with each other on like a physical uh, shot. And I always wanted to ask her how she like pulled something off like that. Like it, it's really, really difficult to do. I, I Like technology has come a far way, but it's all, it's interesting to see that even before she was doing the deuce, like she's having practice on enterprise, which, which is good. If you're doing a lot of VFX sort of stuff that like you, you get practice doing a Star Trek show first before you go ahead and do it like 15, 20 years later again for HBO. And not only that, but working with Jolene Blaylock here, both T'Pol's feel like very different characters. It's not a sense of, you know, one actor just kind of replicating the performance twice. Like both T'Pol's feel very different. And I like that Roxanne Dawson obviously helped her achieve that. Well, okay. And the other thing I really want to uh, appreciate about this episode is how it furthers T'Pol's character arc throughout the season in which they're talking about the Trillium addiction and, and to, you know, uh, old T'Pol explains like, it's well with this trillium addiction you're gonna have to live with emotions that you accessed earlier on you're gonna live with those the rest of your life and and that's one of the interesting things that like she is a distinct vulcan character she is not spock she is not to paul or she is to paul she's not to i should say but uh kind of undercutting my point she's not old to paul (laughs) there you go but but it is interesting like, like she they create a very distinct Vulcan and, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago with regards to the uh, three ships episode I don't want to do the Klingon pronunciation but the three ships episode of Lower Decks in which you ask yourself is it sustainable to have kind of an all Vulcan crew that uh, on a starship that you would want to follow week to week probably not but I think there's the opportunity to create like very distinct characters within a rather kind of uh like a monolithic sort of species. Yeah, and I, I like that they, just by touching on the effect of the trellium there, it also allows them to take T'Pol in directions that maybe a different Star Trek show wouldn't have, because T'Pol does feel like such an original, unique character throughout Enterprise, and it's by taking some of these risks that help feed into that. I think you can say the same thing for Spock with a lot of the balancing of the human versus Vulcan um, you know, backgrounds that he deals with throughout the run of that show. I think it's when Star Trek tries to just frame them as basic Vulcan is when it runs into trouble. And I think the Trellium stuff, the trip relationship, all these various factors help make T'Pol that much more of a rich character. So one of the things I, I, I do want to comment on, though, is why, why does the Enterprise VFX looks so much better than the Discovery VFX, like the renderings that we saw in season one of Discovery 
versus what we're seeing season three of Enterprise. And th- those shows are, it- it's 15 year gap between them. Like, I-, I do not understand that. If I could answer that question, I would sleep better at night. <laughs> it-, it just like, w- like we were commenting on it as the season aired. Like we could not wrap our heads around why that would be the case. No, it doesn't make any sense. I, I would maybe next time we're in Vegas, um, hopefully 2022, and there's an effects person. Maybe we can ask that. Now, I wouldn't ask someone who works on Discovery, <laughs> but maybe uh, someone who works on the effects, you know, go back on Voyager Enterprise or something like that. Okay, it's just it's so weird because I, I'm looking at um, Battlestar Galactica, which premiered in 2004. I did a rewatch during the pandemic. The VFX there that they look like so impressive for a show that premiered nearly 20 years ago and then i look at season one of discovery i'm just like oh it looks like um i'm watching like a pixar movie or something like i i like it it took me out of the moment it's gotten better over the years um i I would say that uh they've learned some lessons um but i do you just think they were under the gun and just didn't have enough time or just was it budget issues or did you think they wanted to do more of that hyper stylized sort of um rendition just as like an art artistic sort of decision and they kind of backed out of that later on or is it maybe just spreading themselves thin with new trek where there's like cg and like practically every shot um not just ship stuff but just like throughout the you know the run of the ship itself inside whereas like back in the day they very much picked their shots because they had a limited budget and so they just kind of had that small number that they had to perfect maybe maybe that's what it is because when you look at a show like Picard or Discovery or expand it even just to the world of films out there, your average blockbuster, your Marvel movie, your Star Wars movie. They are just wall to wall effect shots beginning to end. And maybe, you know, without picking shots and just spreading it across everything, it, it's like you kind of get a degraded level of quality. Yeah, I it's just it's baffling to me. But uh, look, people watch uh, HD version of Enterprise. It's uh, it, it won't take you out of it. It's just interesting. Because I, I, and I, I won't beat this, uh, uh, this dead horse too much. But you, you watch kind of the, the practical effects that they relied on, um, the, like the physical models that they relied on in uh, Next Generation, and that holds up in the HD transfer. And then you wonder, well, is everything going to look like bad Babylon 5 moving forward? Um, I, I would I would say that Enterprise does not suffer from that, and so like props to them. Um, Kim, a, any final thoughts? I, I like I think maybe we want to do kind of uh, maybe our expectations for Star Trek Prodigy, which will be premiering in just a few days. Um, but any final thoughts on the episode E squared? Yeah, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this episode in comparison to Children of Time from um, DS Nine. Well, yeah, obviously, uh, Children of Time, we have a similar sort of descendant situation in which uh, the Defiant kind of crashes into this planet, but it's split in two. So we've got uh, one Defiant trapped in the orbit, and then another Defiant uh, trapped in time crashes on a planet, and we need descendants of the Defiant as well. I think that Children of Time is so overlooked. It raises so many questions, but it also (laughs) turns Odo into a villain that you would not have expected, but not necessarily the Odo as we know. Um, It's like the... uh, the much, much older uh, Odo. I think we're talking about like, it's like a 400 year difference versus a 117 year difference. If I had to give it to one, I still kind of give the nod to Children of Time only because they kind of took that idea first and ran with it. And there's just so many interesting questions that they brought up, whether it was Klingon culture, like kind of uh, on the outskirts of this community. Um, it was, you know, Odo revealing his feelings to Kira, but only after he had like 400 years of living with regret over it. Like, I, I think that one is just such a killer Deep Space Nine episode. But what are your thoughts? Well, I yeah thought it was really interesting just the parallels with older Odo telling Kira about his feelings for her. And then here we get older T'Pol talking to T'Pol about, you know, the relationship with Trip. It's sort of a similar use of these older characters to a younger character and also a similar concept setup. I mean, we did an episode not so long ago about, I think we called it, you know, when Star Trek rips itself off or whatever it was or remakes itself. Um and that it likes to revisit these sort of, um, you know, high concept stories they come up with and revisit them again and again. There's also some Yesterday's Enterprise in this one as well. But I really did think a lot about Children of Time watching this one. And I think for me, the reason that it doesn't um, grate on me the way some of the ones we named in that podcast episode did, where they were very lazy remakes, like a Naked Now, Naked Time kind of thing, um, it feels like they just kind of take the setup and maybe some little kernels, but use it to do original things for their show and to explore their characters in new ways. 
But I just kind of like the relationship that those two episodes have here, where there is a little bit of a conversation and just the evolution of Trek storytelling. Children of Time is one that I agree it's a fantastic episode, but I think the reason it's maybe a little overlooked is that DS9's highs are so incredible that it gets kind of dwarfed by those. Whereas when you look at Enterprise and you're like, okay, what are the best episodes of Enterprise? I think this one tends to come to mind, um, you know, more quickly because Enterprise didn't have the consistent highs the way that DS9 did. I guess, yeah. And so then if I were asking you to uh, put this uh, E squared in a top five, a top 10, a top 20, where do you think it would land? I'm not asking you to rank the, it specifically right now uh, off the top, top, top of your head, but uh, where does it kind of generally land for you? And you mean just in regards to Enterprise episodes, right? Yes. Yeah, I would say, um, would it be top 10? It, okay, I would say if it's not top 10, it's in, if I'm doing a top 20, it's at like number, you know, 12 or 11 or something like that. It's, it's very close to that top 10 or, you know, maybe, maybe it requires the top 20 list, but it's close. Yeah. Okay, it, it's not a top 20 episode for me. It's uh, I would put this in my top 10. Uh, you know, there's other things like In a Mirror Darkly, the uh, two-part finale, or what we wish was the finale as well, that are definitely kind of um, up in the top 10. Um, I, I have to put E squared. Honestly, this is one of those episodes, if somebody says, hey, would you recommend Enterprise? This is one I think it's easy enough for people to digest. It gives you the tone of the series. It kind of captures a lot of those sci-fi questions. And it makes us actually care about the characters. It, it, it's really Enterprise... Um, doing that and then after that i would recommend north star <laughs> i was gonna say bound uh bound's the one i recommend to people as the greatest episode of enterprise well you are the man of the month so i get it <laughs> or a man right. every month i should say a man every month <laughs> that's right that's right and bound is great every month as well <laughs> yeah yeah oh we're feeling like cam we know you're on that every week so, um sadly so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's talk about Star Trek Prodigy. Um, by the time you folks hear it, it uh, may have already premiered or else, uh, you know, just a few days away. I, I want to know what tone they're going to strike with this children's show. Because, Cam, it, it could be absolutely, like, engaging or it could be quite, quite uh, a tough sit. I, I hope it's the former, not the latter. We are going to, it's going to be a one-hour premiere. We will be doing a review of that. And then I think we'll have to decide if we want to do weekly reviews. I, I think we're leaning towards probably letting them build up maybe two or three episodes at a time and then doing reviews every few weeks. But um, what do you think is going to be the most important thing for you to determine whether or not Prodigy is it's successful at whatever it's trying to accomplish? Yeah. So I think for me, what it's going to require is that I have a, I mean, I want the tone to really make sense to me because it was weird when I watched the trailer, just how like kind of dark it was for a kid's show that sort of surprised me. I would imagine that won't be the case for the show, but I think for me, it's tough because when I'm looking at say the Star Trek episodes we're talking about, you know, today, like E squared and things like that, um, there's a richness to the storytelling that gives you a lot to grapple with. I don't expect that from Prodigy. I think that would be unfair to expect because it is a show aimed at children I would like to see, though, the sort of imagination and sort of the daring that you see in the original animated series. I know the animation will be much better than on that show. The vibe will be different. I don't I'm not asking for a replica of the, you know, the animated series from the 70s. But you watch that show and it felt like it was talking to kids and like treating them with intelligence. It was not dumbing it down. It was telling very smart sci-fi stories. And it was very visually imaginative, but it had its own unique thing. It was it was saying, we're not just a kid's show. We want to offer something different. So I think I'd like to see Prodigy taking that tack, offering something different, but that, you know, kids can lock into. I just think that it, this show's not going to succeed if it's going to be serialized. Kids are not going to be locked into a serialized program where they're going to have to follow this storyline. I think that Discovery and Picard really proved how easy it is to create this convoluted storyline that you quickly uh, get bored of. Kids are going to get bored of it even quicker. I think that they need to go episodic. They need to go hard on the episodic thing. But 
you know, like they want to do with Strange New Worlds. Like, you can still have ongoing character threads, recognizable traits, and maybe a villain that appears in, you know, a, a few episodes then can come back later on as well. I mean, I mean, Shredder did it. So that's why I'm not too concerned when, you know, I'm hearing announcements about recurring characters. I, I think that's what happens in episodic television. I'm going to be very, very concerned if it becomes clear after episode, you know, three that, oh, they're making this serialized. Well, have they ever said what specific age they're aiming it at? Well, I, I mean, my guess would be like uh, six and up. Like, okay. You know, that that's my guess. Yeah, there is a difference to me because there are like Star Wars animated shows that are serialized in sort of a fun way that I think kids can follow. But that's kids who are going to be a little bit older, kind of like a, you know, 10 years old kind of thing, maybe eight to 10. But if they want to make a Star Trek show that can be shown more to, you know, very young, young children then I wouldn't expect a serialization. I just don't think that would make sense other than having recurring characters and what have you. But I can't imagine them doing a variation on like the Red Angel mystery through a season of Star Trek Prodigy. That wouldn't make sense. I suspect we'll get something more along the lines of 321 Recess or Hey Arnold uh, versus, say, Peppa Pig or Caillou. I, that, that's what my guess is going to be. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> I've never seen these shows. <laughs> I, I I don't watch these shows, uh, but uh, they are very well-known uh, cartoons for kids, though. And actually, you know, I, I should say, uh, back in the day, like, I did watch uh, Hey Arnold and 321 Recess. But uh, Peppa Pig, Caillou, those are, those are the ones for, like, the two or three-year-olds. Yeah, I'm aware of these shows, like, because I... I you know, in my job, I sometimes do cake decorating and I've done a number of these kind of cakes uh, with those characters. But I just are any of these shows serialized? I have no idea anymore. Not really. No. no. Yeah. OK. Well, yeah, then I wouldn't. Ex the only thing I want. Well, the one thing that maybe gives me hope it won't be serialized is that it seems like they're very comfortable doing more episodic storytelling with um, Strange New Worlds. So I'm hoping the Kurtzman factory is maybe letting go of the serialization thing just a bit. So hopefully that was the case with Prodigy, because I just think that might get old. Um, the one thing, though, that gives me pause was sort of the setup for the show, as seen in the trailer, where it seemed like it was sort of setting up some sort of serialized story. But it could also easily be just setting up a central premise that we, you know, pursue week to week without it being an ongoing story. Yeah, but yeah, then then I I think back and there's stuff like Dragon Ball Z, which is incredibly popular and it's very serialized and but but it's built around like a strong mythology and and I wonder how mythology driven versus plot point driven any potential serialized storyline is going to be because I think there's a very distinct difference and I don't think the the Picard and Discovery writing staffs quite understand that distinct uh, that distinct difference. No. Did you, um, just, I'm just curious, did you ever watch the show Reboot? Yeah, I did. Was it serialized? Um, there's kind of the, the villain, you know, but I think you could jump in, uh, watch any episode any given time, and he'd be fine with that. I think Reboot is more episodic, yeah. Well, I think that's important, too, that they make it that way, because kids aren't necessarily going to be just like, watching these episodes the way that adults have been geared to follow like these um serialized shows like kids especially if you're like five four whatever um who knows what they're hitting play on they could be bouncing around episodes like nobody's business yeah i just uh, final thought you mentioned a camp this show just it can't take itself too seriously like if you're trying to draw in kids it, it needs to be a little like light on its feet you know like, uh, you can tackle serious themes, but, it, and again, please, for the love of God, don't make the the, uh, the finale about the end of the universe and how only the USS Protostar can save the universe from destruction. We've seen it like five times so far with this Kurtzman era. We, we don't need to see it again. Okay, well, I have a larger point I want to make, but um, do you think they will do an end of the universe? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think they will. <laughs> Yeah, I, I get that sense too. That like this, uh, these antagonists are gonna have some sort of uh, take over the galaxy kind of mission. I look. I remember watching Hey Arnold. None of those episodes are about the end of the universe. Like I enjoyed Hey Arnold. Like it's not necessary for eight, nine year olds to get into it. You know. Yeah. Um. 
I, I do hope, you know, following up on what you said, though, with, in terms of like having a sense of humor, when you look at the original series, uh, the animated series, I should say, from the 70s, I think one of the things that's really important is it took its morals very seriously and I think communicated them to children in a smart way. But it had a sense of humor about itself. You know, you look at an episode like The Practical Joker, um, you know, the Kirk is a jerk on the shirt. Like, that's genuinely funny. And there's a lightness to what happens on that show a lot of the time. There's some really funny lines in there. But they have like a teachable moment that I think they don't undercut. Like they present that very earnestly to children. And I think that is something I would like to see brought over. As long as it's not a string of pratfalls, then I, I'm willing for it to be a little goofy. Like that that's totally cool with me as well. I would also like to see a villain. And now I'm going to date myself with the things I grew up on. But when I think of like Skeletor or Cobra Commander back in the day, like they were bad guys, but they were really fun and they were really funny. Like now as an adult, I watch them and I, I really do crack up at a lot of these Skeletor line readings and stuff. I hope they don't play the villains in the show as like grimdark. Ooh, like they're scary. They're bad. Like I'd like them to, you know, be a little broad with them. I think that could be fun. Yeah, Ursula scared the death out of me like uh, when I was a kid. Like I like I had trouble watching Little Mermaid. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, she's definitely pretty spooky. Her song is uh, pretty hilarious, though. The Poor Unfortunate Souls. Yeah, I sing it in the shower every every morning. So. <laughs> okay, so on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Tyler, what are we doing next week? Well, of course, we'll be tackling the series premiere of Star Trek Prodigy. In the meantime, just I, I'd urge everyone go on to your podcatchers. Give us, you know, five stars and a review. It's a free show. This helps us expand, find new audiences. It's how that algorithm works all over the place. And j just do that little thing. That's all we ask. Um, and uh, I, I think we'll have a lot of uh, more audiences joining us in the near future, especially with new shows premiering very soon. Discovery's coming up. Prodigy, Strange New Worlds, Picard. It's going to be a busy few months, so let's get as many ears on the show as possible. Definitely. Make us the podcast for every month. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kev. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in VFX on Enterprise, better than Discovery, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P is in podcast for every month. O-R. T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. In pain, in need. This one longing to be thinner, that one wants to get the girl, and do I help them? Yes, indeed. Those poor unfortunate souls, so sad, so true. They come flocking to my cauldron, crying spells, Ursula, please, and I help them? Yes, I do. Transfer complete.